This is Global Ambitions, your 15-minute window into the minds of localization and international go-to-market experts. Discover how they respond to their biggest challenges. Here's today's host. I'm Stephanie, and I'll be your host today for this Global Ambitions podcast episode. Our topic today is taking business to and from Japan, and our guest is John Hayato Branderhurst, who is a senior strategist at Btrax, an innovative design company specializing in UX and service design. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so as you mentioned, my name is John Hatto Brandenhorst, and I have been spending the last 15 plus years helping companies enter Japan and also come from Japan and enter the U.S. market. So I guess we'll just jump right in there. My first question to you is, what is the top challenge you faced when taking clients into Japan? So I think I probably have two answers. So unfortunately, there's no top for me. <laughs> one, one is when a company that are, is interested in Japan has this global strategy and they don't really want to adjust it at all for the Japanese market. Their Japanese are very unique. The second would be is when the product itself or the service, uh, they are not really understanding that the value proposition may be different for the Japanese market. So when you say that people are hesitant or don't want to adjust, how do you get around that when you're talking to them? How do you convince them, I guess, that they really do need to make those adjustments in order to be successful? A couple of ways. Uh, I would say the first way is whenever I start having conversations with companies who are interested in Japan, I do some initial research. So I try and share insights right off the bat on that, the market opportunities or if they're already in Japan, because I do, we work with companies that are already in Japan and want to grow. We look at brand sentiment, right? So trying to share as much education and knowledge right off the bat. That's probably the starting point. What options are there for getting a Japanese input into that? Is it all like market research that you do or how, how do you get that data? Right. So there's a few different ways depending on the industry, you know, whether it's B2B, B2C, but uh, market research is that initial kickoff of helping companies enter the Japanese market. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they've done research themselves. We like to look at it and then we adjust kind of like what we're going to do. And if it's depending on if it's, you know, a totally new type of service or product, a lot of qualitative kind of studies will come into play. We have UX researchers who handle that. So just to be clear, I'm not the one running that these days. <laughs> and then we also kind of like amplify some of those findings with surveys, online surveys, depending on also what part of Japan. If you're looking at the whole Japanese market, a lot of times companies are looking at just Tokyo as their kickoff point. Right. Although, a uh, quick tidbit, that, was not the, that has not been the case with a lot of these food delivery companies that are entering the market. Like when you look at Uber Eats, oh, really? uh, DoorDash, and these other companies, yeah. They're, they're kind of going after these tier two markets, I would say, just because Tokyo is so, you know, dense and uh, like saturated, I would say. This might be going a little bit off on a tangent, but public transportation, they're really good in Japan, right? It's mostly like trains and things like that for these sort of startups who are very much more car based. Ha has that been a big adjustment? I think if you're talking about Uber, <laughs> I don't know if people are aware, but Uber in Japan is basically Uber Eats. Like you're not dealing, you're not doing the, the Lyft or the Uber services. Uh, like you said, public transportation is really great. So taxis, trains, especially in the cities, uh, outside of the cities, I think there's more of an opportunity, but you got to really understand the regulations and work with the system. Don't try and hammer your way in. 
Right. That's a good example right there of how someone had to adjust their value proposition going into Japan for sure. Exactly. How would someone go about saying that, hey, I know I need a partner to help with the local logistics in this place? How, how do they find that person if they don't have local people on the ground? The, I mean, there's a couple different ways, right? Like, I would say there's government initiatives on both sides of the Pacific that support finding the right partners. It uh, depends on your business model. If you are looking for a sales team, there's partners. I don't personally work on the sales kind of uh, development side now. I've been working on is like kind of digital marketing, market entry, kind of that research and strategy side. But the, the beautiful thing is, it's like if you were to talk to me and I'm not the right person, I will help you find the right person. That's kind of the thing that you'll find, especially with those of us who work in the same area. Like I can tell you, you know, five different agencies that help companies enter the Japanese market and. Hopefully, you know, the agency I'm working with is in the running, but if we're not the right fit, I can help you find the right one. So that sort of talks about maybe the logistical and staffing on the ground. I guess some other issues that we often hear from companies either going to Japan mostly is when you go over there, you need to have everything translated. There's no English anywhere. You need to have someone who speaks Japanese, all of those sorts of issues. I mean, we've heard these for many years in the past, but are they still true at this day and age? And do you really need those? You will need somebody who does speak Japanese, I think. But the, the learnings that people have had in the last few years, I would say, is, is it's, that shouldn't be the only thing you're looking for, though. Like a lot of times when you hire a country manager entering the Japanese market, the fact that they speak English should not be the reason you hire them, right? So making sure that, especially for, I would say, you know, Silicon Valley startups that are going into the Japanese market, they're disrupting something, right? And so the person right. you hire who's going to be handling Japan should understand how to navigate that disruption, right? So is there going to be conversations that need to be had, partnerships that need to be made that are maybe, you know, these people, can they, can they have those? Right. Do they understand uh, how fast you're looking to move? Or do, are they able to have the harder conversations with your team around like, well, this isn't going to work in Japan unless you do this, this, and this. Um, but yes, just in general, the clients I talk to, they struggle with finding the right talent who are bilingual and have that skill set, I would say. And I would imagine that it also has to do, you know, with just how business is done in Japan. I know I spent maybe four, four and a half years working over there, and it was very much a process of if you need something done, it has to be stamped by everybody in the department going all the way from the bottom to the top and getting everything done. So it's really that cultural knowledge that you needed as well. Has that been the case that you've seen in more like the corporate setting? Short answer is still yes. There's been some mm -hmm. fun articles in the last few months around like, you know, there was a whole government initiative around doing away with faxes, doing away with the Hanko, which is the stamp that you speak of. I, I do feel like it's moving in the right direction slowly. COVID has definitely sped up some of this kind of change. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about Japan being such an in-person relationship-based society for, for business, right? But more and more right. of the executives in Japanese companies are comfortable now with Zoom meetings or Google Meet meetings or Teams. I'm trying to throw out a couple of different platforms. Uh, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, there, there is more of that. And the fact that even though a lot of Japanese have still gone into the office during COVID even, they're still shifting. They're still slowly work from home initiatives happening. And I can see it maybe not as fast as a lot of people would like, but you also have to understand the type of system you're working with, 
right? So like I'm not trying, right. I'm, I'm slowly seeing it happening, I think. So maybe to follow up on that with COVID, you've been working with companies all through these COVID months, I'm sure. How have your recommendations changed or how has um, that whole process of entering the market changed due to COVID or ha- has there been changes? One of the clients that I've worked with over the last uh, year and a half was interesting is we started discussing digital marketing, brand awareness strategy before COVID. But the contract didn't actually get signed till after COVID had kicked off. And obviously in the US, it was a bigger deal before it was in Japan. But it being a US headquartered company, the Japanese team was having to follow the rules that the the headquarters had placed, right? Mm. So we went from a very in-person strategy of, you know, trade shows, conferences, creating content that would be on like, uh, let's say a train and things like that to almost 100% digital. So running a whole like changing that all to like a, a four quarter webinar strategy, attending different virtual conferences, figuring out different partners uh, that were doing digital media, online publications to try and achieve the same goals that were, we were tasked with before COVID. Mm. And, and it was an interesting challenge. We definitely saw people getting more and more comfortable with kind of the webinar structure, I would say. You know, Global Socket, we went, we went mm-hmm. straight to uh, virtual this past year, and we've had to adjust based off of people's, we'll say, Zoom fatigue for different events with these clients. Have you guys noticed any differences in even, say, like the, the buying trends in Japan are versus before COVID? So that would be, you know, of great interest to a company who's maybe in e-commerce or that sort of thing going into the country. Are things different now than they were? Uh, I think one of the things we've seen is definitely one of the things that was interesting is, is you know, in Japan, if you order something online, you historically expect to receive that thing in person. Oh, okay. Right? If I order something in Japan, it's and it's like the windows of a delivery <laughs> are much more narrow than like if I order something on Amazon and it's coming to my house today, it'll get here sometime today. It may be 10 p.m. tonight, but it'll get here and it'll get left on my door. And I'll only know that because uh, my ring device will tell me that somebody was at my front, front door. Uh, in Japan, you know, historically, you would accepted in person. And so there's been some innovation and comfort around contactless deliveries, things like that. And I think more so for the older generation. So that's, that's been a big part and also shopping, right? Like, so going into a grocery store, maybe you're doing more online ordering and having that food delivered and figuring out a way to do contactless, but being there so that you can receive it somehow. Yeah, that, that is a difference for sure. Is there yeah. anything else? I know we're coming towards the end of our time, but Is there anything else that you could recommend for someone where if they're just looking at taking those first steps towards thinking about entering Japan or are there things that they just need to be aware of right off the bat to make sure that they consider them before they even take that first step? Yeah. So I never have to convince people Japan, right? Like Japan is a tier one market for (laughs) if you're expanding, uh, especially to Asia, right? Like it's a proven market, but I would say don't Just expand to Japan because you want to necessarily, like try and find the right signals and figure out and understand what type of messaging, what type of product changes, like is your target user or user persona different? A lot of these things are not that hard to find out. Put in the effort, whether it's your internal team, whether it's hiring a freelancer, an agency. 
there are a lot of experts and people who can help you just at least understand the Japanese market more than maybe somebody who's just visited for a vacation. That's, that's kind of my best advice is just do a little bit of research and find, you know, we all know somebody who's probably lived or worked in Japan. I mean, at least maybe, maybe that's my own circle, my bubble. But, uh, you know, I think, I think there's an opportunity and don't rush it. Like, I, I think the, we, I have worked with a client that expanded to Japan. They wanted to do it, I would say, without doing all of the research. And then we worked with them a year later because they had not done the proper, like, education of the consumer. And it was also something that was sold in, like, stores. And the, the people selling the product in the stores didn't really know how to sell it either, right? So think through the whole user customer journey and figure out which touch points you need to kind of dial in in terms of messaging and education. All right. Well, thank you for that. This is very interesting for our listeners, I'm sure. So I guess my final question is, do you have anyone that you would recommend that we would have on the show in the future? Yes. So I, I heard, I've heard quite a few people speak about international over the last couple of years. And I'm going to do a quick plug, but like at the Global Sake event, the speakers that stick out in my mind who just had really great insights were somebody like Kazumori from Wix, Isabel Bikachi. I think she's at Outer now, but she was, a lot of her insights were from her time at Open Table, and Andy Anderson from Tinder. They have some really great tangible stories that people can hold on to, enjoy, learn something from. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely have to reach out to them and I might ask you for an intro so I'm not just cold calling them to come on the show. But Happy to. We'll, we'll get that done. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and I'm sure we'll talk again shortly. Yes, it's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed this time. Thanks for tuning in to Global Ambitions. Subscribe at globalambitions.net or wherever you get your podcasts.